You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends, and welcome. I am quite excited about today's show. With apologies to guests I've had on before today, this show, the one you're about to hear, is probably my favorite. It's packed with so much. The storytelling is impeccable. You're in rapt attention just waiting to hear what's going to come next. And storytelling, of course, is a skill set. Maybe a vastly underappreciated skill set, but a skill set nonetheless. If someone is telling you a story, you can sense immediately whether or not they're a good storyteller. A good storyteller is sincere and trustworthy. They have enthusiasm for the story they're telling. I consider that sort of table stakes. But then they set the story up well. It's almost like they've told it before, which hopefully they have, because practice will help the storyteller to improve their story thereby making it more enjoyable for the listener. Good communication almost always starts with good practice. Very few of us are naturals. The storyteller, through iteration, will get to a point where they're leaving out any unimportant details, and they can add back in details that might enhance the story. What makes for a bad storyteller? Well, usually they give you too much detail. We've all had this experience. You get to work on Monday morning and you say to your coworker, hey man, weekend good? And they start setting up their story. Oh, you're not going to believe what happened at the car wash. Remember how I told you I was going to take my car in to get detailed a few weeks ago? And you're thinking, yes, I remember all those details and the 20 minutes of my life that I won't get back. And he starts in with his story. Well, they told me I was going to get 20% off my next wash if I just brought my truck in with the coupon they gave me. So you get details about the coupon, he's going to tell you what the person looks like who gave him the coupon, why he decided to take his car in on Saturday instead of Sunday, where he went to eat lunch afterward, who was supposed to meet him for lunch, what that text message said, what he replied to that text message. And then you hear, just as you think he's going to, back, he's going to wrap up his story, you hear, well, let me back up. <laughs> and you're thinking, please don't back up. But he forgot a detail, so he wants to add it in. It's all important. This person has never asked themselves in their life if a story is worth telling in the first place, because to him, every detail of his life is worthy of a story. <laughs> Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Why buy when you can rent an item from someone in your neighborhood with Idol? It's easy. You have an item, you list that item for rent, another app user is looking for that item and rents it from you, and you get paid. Rent everything you need, when you need it, in a location close to home. Get the app today. Visit getidle.com. Idle. Rent anything. A good storyteller is delightful. There's not a lot of fluff in their story. If it's not relevant to the story, they'll leave it out. The best storytellers I've been around are good salespeople. The reason is... They use the power of story to relay the successes that other customers are having with their product. 
We call it reference selling. And it's strategic. And it's very powerful. Another way that salespeople and business people will use stories is to qualify deals. Because time is precious. There's no more important task for an entrepreneur or business person than to figure out how to make the highest and best use of your time. Many young business people waste a lot of time and effort on deals that aren't going anywhere. And they should have known this from the start. But what happens is they engage in wishful thinking. Their emotions get involved in whether they want a deal to close or not. And this inhibits their ability to think probabilistically. So they spend a lot of time pursuing a deal that has 0% chance of closing. But if they had better qualifying skills, they would know that all the hours they spent pursuing this 0% chance deal would have been better spent elsewhere, where their odds were in their favor. And then that time is well invested. So they hold on to hope as a strategy, deluding themselves in the process. And remember, there's nobody easier to fool than yourself. Charlie Munger taught us that. So what do you do? How can you get better at qualifying things? And by the way, this doesn't just apply to business people. If you're out looking for a job or if you're in the dating pool or you have a side hustle, storytelling applies. You can get better through storytelling. There's a story I used to tell that would help qualify deals all the time. It would go like this. I would say, Mr. Decision Maker. I wouldn't call him Decision Maker, whatever his name is. I would say there's an old story from Israel about a man who visits the Ministry of Communication. The man says he wants a telephone installed in his house. So the minister says, no problem. You should have it in six to nine months. The man says, six to nine months? Is there any hope of getting it sooner? And the minister says, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. There's always hope. There's just no chance. <laughs> Mr. Decision Maker, do you, do you think we'll get this deal done this month? That one little story, well told, can get you to a yes or a no. You don't want to get stuck in maybe land. A story can also help you to make you more memorable. So when a customer does decide to pull the trigger, you'll be the first person they call. Storytelling ability nowadays is as valuable as it's ever been. Maybe with the exception of hunter-gatherer days. I say that because we live in a time when attention is currency. You can grab someone's attention with a story and hold it, especially with attention spans waning as quick as they are. Incredible skill set to have. My guest is Dr. Jorge Valdez, and his story has it all. It's got grit and determination, hope and redemption, the power of religious persecution, and how religious persecution can drive a man who was once one of the wealthiest men in Cuba to take his family and only the clothes on their back and head to the shining city on a hill. He remembers things his dad said to him in November 1966, the same way I remember things my dad said to me in November 1991. That stuff sticks with you the rest of your life. My chat with Dr. Valdez is one of those conversations you don't get to have every day, so I'm grateful. Frankly, listening to this one might have you saying, holy shit, every couple of minutes, it did me. He was once the biggest drug dealer in the United States. He talks about his prison sentence, the time he stood up to Pablo Escobar, and how he's developed what he calls a narco mindset through all of this. And of course, I ask him some fun questions at the end. So here's my chat with Dr. Jorge Valdez. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Valdez, thank you for joining me on short notice. I really appreciate you being here. It's my pleasure to be with you. I want to start with your upbringing because I find, I find the fact that you grew up under 
communist rule in Cuba to be fascinating. Were you aware of how different life was for you under communism at the time versus, say, how Americans were brought up? It really, I, I was not. Uh, when I came to the United States, I was 10 years old. So I decided to go to school five years earlier, because in Cuba you go at five. And uh, life was pretty normal for me. You know, I, I couldn't tell the difference of how it was way before I had knowledge of how life was as to how it was. You know, we all, every kid went to the same school. Uh, the only thing that I did notice was that my mother was very religious. And we would be in school. And then, of course, you know, Castro would teach us all about communism and, and the religions for weak people, etc. And I'd come home and my mom is like, no, 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 no. God is everything. And if you look at like Mexico or Cuba, you know, the towns all surrounding the church. So literally whenever you go from one way, one town to one place in town to another, you go to the church. So we were in church all our lives. And uh, she just wanted us to come and be in a country where we could worship God freely. My parents were very wealthy in Cuba. So I had no idea what that was. So coming to America at the age of 10, and all of a sudden being, being waking up and like get dressed, we're going to Miami and I, I went to pack and she's like, no, 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 just the clothes on your back. I was in shock, you know, like why had nobody warned me? What do you mean we're going to Miami? You know, what about my friends? You know, how about our toys? But we went to the airport and at the airport, as we're waiting for a name, my mother starts crying and my dad, oh, I could see my dad say, no, I'm not going, I'm not going. I, I have no clue. I'm 10. My brother is nine. My sister is five. And uh, my mother comes and get, grabs my hand and puts it in, grabs my brother and sister and says, Jorge, take your brother and sister to Miami. I will be with you one day. And I was like, I mean, it was like so traumatic that I, I became like hypnotized. What do you mean you're not coming? What do you mean you will be with us one day? What does all this mean? And why isn't that coming? Why do I have to? take, you know, my brothers to Miami. And uh, by God's grace, my father did get on the plane as we were leaving. And this was the end of the freedom flights. Because what Fidel had done is when you were turned 12, you, you would be taken away, kids would be taken away from their home. So like if you had a child and you live in Houston, then your child will be sent to Seattle. And then uh, a kid from New York will be sent to your house. And, and it was really genius looking back because it was a way that he could indoctrinate kids. If I went to school and they told me something contrary to my parents, I would tell my parents, right? And of course, my parents would say whatever and nothing done. If I came to a stranger's house and I said, this is what they're taught in school and they tell us differently. And I come to the teacher and I say, look, Miss such and such said that this is not true. She got to jail for five years. That's, a, that's how Fidel literally changed the whole culture. And then what ends up happening is that's what you hear about. It. I don't know if you ever heard the Operation Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. You know, all those kids that the parents send them to the U.S. with this priest from Atlanta. And uh, it's a very interesting book because they all became super successful. The CEO of AT&T, Rob De La Vega, and many, many very, very wealthy people. And they're like, what did this priest teach these kids that? But once the kids came, then Fidel did not allow the families to come for years. So literally, they grew up as orphans. So we came to Miami and then it was shock because we, 11 of us, went to sleep in a one-bedroom apartment writing down what time we are going to piss. The first thing I said to myself was like, hey, you know what? My mom is crazy. God is not real. Fidel was right. Because if we come to the United States to be with God, 
and we're living in a house that's one square block. And, and we're living in now in a 700 square foot, 600 square foot apartment, one bedroom, one bathroom, sleeping in the floor, having no money for food. You know, what does that mean? So your dad so, was one of the wealthiest people in Cuba, but couldn't take the wealth with him? No, no. I mean, literally, everybody had to leave with the, just the clothes on their back. We couldn't even bring an extra pair of underwear. Nothing. Just uh, a belt, pant, uh, shirt, shoes, and socks. That's it. We went like that. And, uh, and I tell people is that's where I encountered the, the American dream. You know, what I thought that was the American dream, what I write about in Coming Clean and in my other book, Narco Mindset, is that American dream that society tells us when you have X, when you have all this, you're going to be happy. For me, it was seeing my cousin who had been there a year earlier than us show up in a, just this gorgeous 1965 GTO uh, car and uh, with candy apple with a white interior. I never see nothing so beautiful. And I'm like, wow, if he got that, you know, I can get this too. And then the day I get this, I will be happy. I will become somebody because I equated uh, identity being someone with wealth, money. Uh, otherwise, you're nobody. And that's what I thought. And, you know, that's what drove me forever. We, we had no money to eat. My father was very proud. He refused to take food stamps. I came home from school. I mean, literally, we would get uh, <clears throat> nothing but uh, a glass of uh, this Vietnam milk that was not even mixed with two raw eggs. And that's all the food we had till nighttime. And then at nighttime, we just had rice and beans. And uh, I remember coming and telling my dad, Dad, you know, a friend of mine takes a sandwich to school. You know, my dad spoke very little. And he just nodded his head. And he's like, and? And I said, well, he says that. His parents get food stamps. I said, Dad, do you know about food stamps? And my dad is like, he nods his head. And I'm like, well, Dad, why don't we get food stamps? And I'll never forget those words. This was about, I say, November of 1966. He looked at me and said, George, food stamps is for poor people. And I'm like, damn, man, we're so freaking poor. We haven't gotten to poor yet. You know, we're in a, a total different category underneath that. And he's like, uh, and people that take from the government are poor and they stay poor of their lives. And I never forget, he put his finger in my chest. You figure out how to get up early in the morning and help feed your family. And I've been working ever since getting up at 4.30 in the morning. Since I was 10 years old, I'm 64 now and I can't get up at 5. <laughs> so, but, you know, tremendous principle, tremendous work ethic. You know, like I tell you, it's all about mindset, right? It's, it's the mindset that we have in life. So my mindset was, you know, do things right, you work hard, you sacrifice, you'll become somebody. At the age of 17, I became the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank. And I started going to, I worked full-time during the day, and then I went to University of Miami at night. And I was just laser-focused. I mean, for me, it was like, you know, I'm going to get out of school at 20, I'm going to go to law school, and by 30, I'm going to be a millionaire. And that's all that mattered. Didn't do drugs, didn't do anything. Never drank alcohol. My mother finally came. Uh, at the end of the first year. And uh, we just sacrificed a lot. But, you know, we're very happy. And as we look at this virus today, it's like I see myself when we had nothing, man. We're, we're full of joy and happiness. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm making a million dollars a month and I'm the most miserable human being in the world. I want to get to you making a million dollars a month. But first, you were a bright student. You were at the University of Miami. You, were, you yep. had a pretty prestigious job at the Federal Reserve Bank. Your next job, 
I, I heard you took a job at, was it La Puerta del, del Sol? Right. So what happened is my accounting professor at the University of Miami comes up to me when we're about to graduate and he's like, hey, he just moved from uh, Michigan to Miami, did not speak Spanish. And he said, look, if you do my Spanish clients, I'll give you a secretary office. You know, you can start your own practice. And that was my dream, to work for myself. Looking back now, which I stayed at the Federal Reserve Bank, I had a tremendous future. God knows I could have been Fed Chairman one day. So, because I, I was an honor student at University of Miami. You know, I was top of my class. I went to do that first client. And I went to the first, it was just a little grocery store in Miami. You know, probably, I don't know, 30 feet wide by 60 feet, those strip joints. I mean, a strip malls, you know. <laughs> I got to clarify, the difference between a strip mall and a strip joint, you know. It's those little, uh, you know, the little stores that are like one next to each other. Sure. A lot of them in Little Havana. And I remember the first date, this is in 1976. I'm 20 years old. And I go in the, they have a little office room in the back. And I go there and I see this paper bag, $135,000 cash. Now, I never imagined in my life, what the hell was that like? You know, I was making tremendous salary at the first third bank. I think I was making like four bucks an hour. Minimum wage was $2. So I was making $106 a week. And I was like, you know, high on the hog. So didn't say nothing. I started to do all of the, uh, set up all the accounts and all that. You know, nice people. Next week I come because they pay me $1,000 a month to come four days, four Mondays for two, three hours each Monday. I mean, I thought like I was like raping them. <laughs> so I come the second week and I see $75,000. Now I'm so naive. I have no idea. Nothing crosses my mind. What the hell is going on here? But something's wrong. It just does not match with everything I learned in accounting class. <laughs> so. The third week when I come and I see 120 some thousand and I'm like 300,000, 300, there's no way. This grocery store, all they purchase all month long is about $500. So I called the owner and I'm like, hey, Albert, look, let me give you a, a little accounting lesson. In, in, in the business world, you buy that can of soup that I see over there, real dusty, which means it's been there for a long time, for a dollar. And if you sell it for $3, you make $2 profit. So you have $300,000 worth of revenue here. That means if you're tripling your revenue, you're spending $100,000, but you're spending four hundred. Mm-hmm. And he just laughed at me. He looked at me in the face and he's like, George, we're not in the grocery business. We're drug dealers. <laughs> and I was like shocked. I'm like, what? La Puerta del Sol, the little grocery store, was a front for the Medellin Drug Cartel. Well, not even the, it wasn't even, Medellin Drug Cartel didn't even exist at this time. So this, I look at this and I'm like, you know, it's like crazy. I've never in my life done anything wrong. I don't have a speeding ticket. I had a girlfriend that she said, wow, you're so boring because every time we go to a party and people are smoking reef, reef for back then, marijuana, which was very popular in the 70s. I leave. I'm like, hey, I'm a federal employee. I can't read my security clearance. So they're like, listen, we just have, we know you work for the government and we have currency restrictions in Colombia and we want to open foreign bank accounts. Do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? I drew very specific lines in my life because I, I was so laser focused on what I was going to do that I would never cross those lines. You know, I would never uh, I watch who I associated with. You know, I watch what places I went to, who I was seen with. I mean, I had a lot of very, very, very meticulous plan. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, here's this line that now 
they're asking me to do their accounting for drug dealers. Now, you got to go back to the 70s. Cocaine was not even in the DEA radar back then. It was all marijuana and heroin. I mean, because what was cocaine for the rich and famous? So I said, okay. And they're like, how much does it cost? And I'm like, yeah, I knew, I knew it cost about $800 from the Federal Reserve Bank from audits, but I, I didn't want nothing to do with that. That was not in my plan at all. That was outside my box. In my box, I had, I had stuck to my box for four years. I was not going to step out of it. And I'm like, $10,000, because surely they're going to say it's too much money. I mean, $10,000 back then is like $100,000 today. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You can buy a Corvette for four grand back then. The guy looks at me and says, great. We'll buy three. <laughs> I'm like, shit. <laughs> and I'm like, immediately I said to myself, George, you're an accountant. You know, we justify everything we do, right? George, you're an accountant. Don't get upset. You know, that's what you were trying to do as long as you don't break the law. And there was no money laundering laws at this time. And I did. And I opened those three foreign bank accounts. I made $30,000. And I was like, I thought I was the richest guy on earth. One day, uh, the owner of the grocery store says to me, look, I want you to meet my boss. And that's when he introduced me to a guy named Manuel. Probably the most, the most amazing man I ever met in my life. The man I owe my life to. I learned the most from. Uh, very educated. Very wealthy. Very, very Catholic. Super religious. And uh, a businessman. He owned airlines. He owned the, the largest uh, emerald mines in Colombia. He owned the largest coal mine. Uh, the largest construction company. I mean, multi, multi-zillionaire. And he's like, hey. I heard a lot about you, and I want you to do a feasibility study for us because we want to open a banana import company. And, and it was really, you know, I look back, I reflect back. I said, you know, he spoke. You can tell he was a businessman, and he knew that opposite to Albro, who was just a cheap drug dealer, he had to talk the right language to me. You know, hey, uh, go open me a company. Then I know something's wrong. But when someone tells you, open and do a feasibility study, then, you know, this guy's a businessman. This is how you do it. You look at and you see what the feasibility of doing the business. And so I said, sure. And I did it. And it was going to be very profitable. And he's like, well, we want to make you the president. And I'm like, look, if I'm going to be the president of this company and do everything, I don't have any money. And I have to abandon my accounting practice. So, you know, I'm going to be equal partners. If not, I don't want it. And I don't have no money for capital. You got to put out the capital for me. And they're like, yeah, we didn't expect anything less. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'm in business with these guys. And, uh, and we bought a ship and we took it, to, got it in California and we're converting it to a refrigeration. And at this time, I meet this kid that's in charge of the refrigeration. And he owned a softball team and I was a great baseball player. And I'm living out there in Stockton and I'm like, we became good friends. Where he was young, I was 20, and uh, he was probably 25. So we started doing the remodeling, and then and then I started hanging out with him, and we go to his house on the weekend and play ball, uh, play softball, and then uh, do a cookout. And he's like, "Hey, I know that that's a cocaine boat. I know that's what that is." I'm like, "Man, you out of your mind?" I said, "You think I'm gonna put my name, president, in a boat to smuggle cocaine? That's how naive I was." Mm. So everything was coming along, and then all of a sudden, I go when I go to Colombia every three weeks to get a report on the how the thing is coming. They start like, you know, you met some really 
important people out there. I said, yeah, you know, and they keep messing with me about that this boat is for cocaine. And uh, I tell them that crazy. And then, and then they, they pop the question. Said, you know, you can make a lot of money with your contacts over there if you represent our interests. I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm, you know, why would you want me? I'm handling your money. Uh, this time we're doing $30, $40 million that I'm uh, laundering for them. And they're like, I said, why would you want to get me involved with that? This, I mean, you don't, you know, you don't crap what you eat. <laughs> and they're like, no, you know, <clears throat> you have a clean record. You're very hardworking and we think you're super smart. And I dodged them. I dodged them. It was beginning to bother me a lot. So one day, I don't know how I had this genius of an idea. I know how to get rid of both of the guys. I'm going to find out what cocaine costs in Miami. And I'm going to come back and tell this guy in California, like, this exorbitant price. He's going to tell me I'm crazy. He's going to leave me alone. I said, well, while I do that, I just go to climb and tell those people, yeah, I'll be charged with everything, but I'm going to be equal partners, and you got to put out my part, which at that time would have been like, you know, that we're paying, we're paying $20,000 a kilo. So if we're buying 500 kilos, that's, $10 million divided by five because it was four of me. That would have been two million bucks. And I'm like, no way in the world. First of all, here's this powerful people that have all the money in the world and all the power. And there's this little young kid, all of a sudden, he wants to be equal partner. They got to put it in the capital form. Brilliant. There's no way to go for it. And I came and I told them. And they're like, you know, I got to talk to my partners. And I left finally for my hotel. We went to dinner that night. Next morning, his morning, the chauffeur was coming to pick me up. You know, uh, I was taking me to the airport. And he comes early and he says, uh, you know, Manuel wants to see you. And I thought we have, you know, failed to discuss something. So I went. There was four, three other guys there. And they had the most stoic face in the world. And I'm like, man, I really screwed this shit up. <laughs> These guys are going to kill me. What the hell was I thinking? They said, sit down. And then he just went right to the point. Look, I've uh, talked to my partners about what you proposed. We agreed to, to do just that. We'll finance you till you make enough money to finance. You'll be in charge of all operations. I said, Manuel, I don't even know what cocaine looks like. <laughs> you can give me talking powder. To me, it'd be the same. <clears throat> he said, don't worry, you'll learn quick enough. I'm like, well, no problem. And I, I literally peed on my pants. <laughs> peed on my pants. And I'm headed to the airport. I want to see if I can change pants. And, <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell did I get myself into? I mean, I'm surely going to die within no time at all. In the first load, I'm done. You know, they're going to catch me. I'm going to go to jail or these guys are going to kill me. Every bad scenario that you can ever imagine, imagine went through my head. But within six months, I did become a U.S. head of all operations. And I ended up setting up all the different distribution. I set up all the handle the money, import the cocaine, how to take it to California, how to send the money to Colombia. All of a sudden, I'm making a million dollars a month. I'm 21 years old, and I'm making a million dollars a month, and now I got everything in the world that I want. I had a million dollars worth of cars, jets. I had a mansion everywhere I went because I hated to carry a suitcase. Where did you stash all this money, all the cash that you had? I set out the most intricate foreign uh, number accounts you can ever imagine. You were a real-life Marty Bird. Have you seen Ozark yet? I started the first two episodes, and I... It wasn't my cup of tea. Oh, okay. He washed a lot you know, of money, it was, too. Yeah, that's what he... But, yeah, it was not my type of show. So, anyway, I... Uh, yeah, they said that the money laundering laws were set up to go against us. One of my workers comes to me and says, the government of Bolivia wants to do business with you. And uh, I tell Manuel, he's like, definitely not. I mean, those people are animals. 
He said, they're going to kill you. And I'm like, nothing can happen to me, man. I'm invincible. <laughs> and I went and negotiated the deal uh, with them. And it was, instead of making a million dollars a month, we're going to make $7 million a month. And I knew then I'd be happy. But on the first load, uh, I go to Colombia to show the pilots where they're going to refuel once you go to Bolivia and refuel in Colombia. And then I was headed to Germany because I was reconciling with my first wife. And I had bought a brand new Mercedes. I was just going to pick it up. We we're going to spend a month out there. So I make a call to tell my the, the gentleman that worked for me in Bolivia, hey, the airplane is headed out there tomorrow. And he's like, you got a problem. You need to come here. And I'm like, what's the problem? He says, just come. So I did. And the problem was that the deal was that for every kilo we bought, they give us one on credit. <clears throat> and I had advanced them, you know, over $2 million. But the, the issue was that when I got there, all they had was what I bought, not, not what they were supposed to give me on credit. I uh, strained that out, had to get back because uh, I had a meeting in Nicaragua with uh, Somoza. And I got on the airplane to Colombia. When my godfather saw me land in Colombia inside that airplane, he almost had a cow. I'm like, Manuel, I told you nothing was going to happen to me. There was no flights to Nicaragua. I got to get there because, you know, I have a very important meeting where he's going to start sending cocaine to the U.S. for us. I was gonna, we were going to drop it in Nicaragua. Then we're going to put it in this refrigerated seafood uh, containers. And I was going to get it in Miami. So I need to be with him. And uh, it's just uh, another short distance. <clears throat> he was adamant. I was adamant. I got on the plane. And uh, both the alternators broke, leaving out of... Uh, Columbia half an hour, and we couldn't get the fuel from the tanks out to the wings, and we crash-landed over the jungles of Panama. And uh, my life began to change. How much money was in the plane when it crashed? Well, I had $150,000 in a suitcase, false bottom that I always had. But we had about 200 kilos of cocaine. And, uh, you know, at that time, that was 8 million bucks. So anywhere from 150 to 200 kilos. When I crashed, the guy that I that was my partner in charge of all the our transportation, and he was in charge of it. He says, "Take the the flare gun and blow this son of a bitch." And I'm like, "I'm not gonna blow this plane up. There's a million dollars in that plane." I said, "There's nothing can happen to me here. This is my this is my country. This is my territory. I buy and sell all this president. Not a problem." And he's like, "Okay." So we were only like 20 miles from uh on uh, Costa Rica. And I had paid a million dollars the year before to finance the campaign of the guy that had just gotten elected president. So I knew that we could do whatever we wanted in Costa Rica. And that's the first mistake I made when we, the police came. Instead of immediately telling that guy, because it was a little town, you know, uh, called Chiriqui, uh, I don't know, an hour and a half from Panama, I should have just said to him, hey, this is what's going on. And giving him $10,000, and he would have probably taken the, the cocaine over himself to Costa Rica. <laughs> but I didn't. I just said, look, I need to call some people to see if they can fix the plane. Take me to a hotel, and we'll come back tomorrow and pick up our suitcases. Because the, the good thing was that the airplane landed like this. When the airplane nosed, though, we jumped off the airplane. So it wasn't easy. they couldn't easily just climb onto the airplane to look at it. They'd have to bring a ladder and all that. Mm-hmm. And we had locked the airplane. I said, hey, here's my passport. Can you put a stamp that we came in here legally so that I can, you know, have no problem coming back again? And that was my biggest mistake. So we went to the hotel. When I came back, <clears throat> I saw this funny-looking people, a couple that look American. I'm like, man, we're done. We got busted. And sure enough, what happened when he gave my passport and they called uh, Panama City, and they're like, George Valdez, arrest him immediately. 
So the DEA came, the Consul General came. I wouldn't talk to them. So they're like, you're going to be here forever. I'm like, that's fine. I knew sooner or later some big wig was going to come and I can negotiate. Sure enough, the Attorney General came a day and a half later. And I'm like, look, all I care about is you tell me how much to buy the cocaine back and how much to get out. And he's like, well, the cocaine has been sold by Noriega already, but to get out $250,000. I'm like, fine. Here's a number and a code. Call Miami and you'll have the money here tomorrow. And he did and the money came. Another mistake I made, I go back and tell the pilots, listen, I just bribed the attorney general. Everything is cool. We're leaving here in two days. They're going to take us to the to Panama City. They're going to rope us up a little bit, make it look good in front of the DEA, and we're out to Costa Rica. Man, we're high-five celebrating. So sure enough, he kept us work two days later. He came, and they put us on an airplane to Panama City. They took us into the the DEA, the uh, DAS over there, which is the uh, like the equivalent to our DEA. And they took us in a room, like a big conference room, but had nothing in it but four chairs up against the wall. So they sit us down in those four chairs. And like three minutes later, they bring this old Panamanian kid, 5'5", five, five, 80 pounds, 90 pounds, naked, handcuffed. They threw him on the floor and they stuck a broomstick up his, uh, you know, up oh his anus and uh, blood just splattered all over the place. Oh and they looked at us and said, we just caught him with two pounds of marijuana. And I'm like, we got close to 200 two kilos pounds. of cocaine. Oh, Jesus. And uh, the pilots cracked. Immediately they cracked. And when they cracked, the first thing they did is not only say that, because I, I, we were going to say that, hey, we're just looking for land to buy for cattle and we crashed. Well, when they cracked, what ended up happening is now that they told them that I was the biggest drug dealer in America, they told them I just bribed the freaking attorney general. And uh, they got sent to the U.S. and I got sent with uh, Harold, my co-defendant, uh, a dungeon. And uh, they tortured us for 28 days, day, day and night. I bled for five years every time I took a piss. And uh, all they wanted was for me to say who everybody was. So, but, you know, I had the mindset that I was going to die in that jail, but I wasn't going to crack. And because uh, I've always lived all my life well, with one saying as a father. I don't want no one ever, ever. I don't want ever my children to bow their heads because they ran into someone that knew me and that person told them their father was not a man. I said, look, they can tell you your father is obnoxious, he's loud, whatever they want to say. But they will always say that your father was a man. Because at the age of 23, man, I almost died. Eventually, Noriega came. I had to give him another $250,000. <clears> they sent us to Miami. You had sent messages to Noriega ahead of his visit, correct? What did you, what did yeah. you want him to know? Well, what you know, I never had fear of anything in life. But this one fear that I had was the guy that was in the cell across from me, he would spend all day long licking the cell bars. And he'd been there for three months and had lost his mind. And it was, it was, I can see easily how to do that. Because, I mean, literally, there's no light, there's no water, there's no food, no toilet, just concrete floor. You, you poop in the corner. And uh, it just horrific, horrific. And then they come in, they beat you till you pass out. And then when you come through, they beat you again. And I'm like, look, I want to die. Because I don't, what I don't want to ever do is be a burden to my family that I'm freaking, you know, uh, lost it. So I told the guard before they came, I said, now you tell Noriega this. 
that he better kill me. Because if he doesn't kill me and I get out of here, he knows I got the power to kill him. I'm going to kill his children in front of him, and then I'm going to kill him. Sure enough, the next day he came. And he came <laughs> laughing. And he's like, why are you threatening me? You know, I didn't tell on you. He said, by the way, you paid the wrong guy. <laughs> so I'm like, how much? He says, 250 I said, damn, man, it's 250 the going price? I got, I paid 250 for four guys. Don't I get a discount? He says, 250 So I went to the same routine, and the minute the money comes here, the next day you leave. And sure enough, the next day they came, and they put, up a, put us against this wall naked, and they try to wash us down with a, with a fire hose because, I mean, the stench in our body and the odor and uh, blood all over us was horrific. And they took us to, an airport, to the airport. I was supposed to go to Costa Rica. And all of a sudden, a bunch of Interpol agents come and dragged like a sack of potato in an airplane to Miami. And I got to Miami, and I was charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America and given the highest bond ever in history, $2 million. I went to, uh, it's a long process that I detail in coming clean. We would need five hours to tell you that whole ordeal. But, uh, you know, I went back, I, I went to trial. I shouldn't have gone to trial. They offered me a, uh, a plea. I didn't want to take a plea because I knew they didn't have a case against me. I got kidnapped in a foreign country. I didn't do nothing wrong in the U.S. So, but I fought them. I had the best attorneys in the world. Spent a million, million and a half in 1979 in, in legal fees. I was convicted. I was convicted and given the highest sentence they could, which was 15 years conspiracy, $150,000 uh, fine, and uh, 15 years parole. So I went to prison and... I had a blast. <laughs> people say prison changes people. People, you know, I, I went there. A lot of people worked for me there. I mean, I had people waiting for me with a cake, said, welcome home, boss. And uh, I did everything in prison. I had a woman, you know, in prison, uh, one of the prison employees. I had as much fun. I just didn't spend as much money. <laughs> but you were and, still uh, making money probably, right? And I was still making a ton of money. So I thought prison was great. Incredible. I get out of prison and just went back to the same thing. I didn't have to. I was a multimillionaire. I own a large cattle ranch and I was making a million dollars a year legit. But it was that thing inside of you, you know, that, that ego, that, that pride that, you know, you beat me unfair and I want to beat you again. And, and I went back and within, you know, no time at all, I was again, uh, very, very rich, very powerful. And then, uh, but something was starting to be different now. Number one, my mother never knew what I was doing before because I was a businessman. Now she did. And uh, all she could tell me is, if you go to jail, you're going to kill us. Number one. Number two, what you do doesn't please God. And number three is, we sacrifice so much to give you an education. Why would you waste your life this way? And I'm like, Mom, I'm fine. And she never stopped. You know, and, and it was really important as a parent. I realized my mother was, she taught me about tough and love. Not tough love, tough and love. So my mother would berate me about my drug business and tell me these horrors. And then the minute she was done, she was like, son, what do you want to eat tonight? You know, because I was her son. Nothing was going to change that. My choices were not going to change that. My choices were not going to change her love for me. But she didn't have to accept it, and she didn't have to even be complacent or ignore it. So... You know, I did that for about two years. And uh, in 1987, I was partying with some Hollywood celebrities. And my ex-wife brought over my little girl. And I was like, I never had women around her. 
when she was with me. So, but she went to bed, and I was in my room. I had this enormous room, and she uh, starts knocking. Daddy, it's Crystal. And I never felt so sick and so filthy and so dirty in my life. I went into the, I chased the women out of the, out of the window, and I went into my room, my bathroom, and I went to try to really scrub the filth off me. And for a guy that everybody said ice went through my veins, I went underneath my sheets, and I was just shivering. She was the only thing that was pure and holy in my life. And if I opened the door, I would contaminate her. You know, it was the, the feeling that you child, you're, you're in a boat and your child falls over and you're like about to touch her, their fingertips to grab me and you can and they drown. And when I thought she had quit, I went back to get water and she was in the floor crying. And I said that moment in time, I'm done. My life will change today. And I had no idea what changes. And I tell this to people, you know, when you, you know, in life, you know when you got to change. So for me, it was easy. I don't know what change is or how that was going to work out. All I know is I'm going north, I'm going to start going south. If I go east, I'm going to go west. I moved out of Miami, which I thought the sun fell and rose in Miami. And I went to live in my ranch. And then I hired this guy to teach me karate. I done karate. And the first day he comes to teach me karate, he's like, I'm going to teach you about the sword. And I mean, I was so excited because, wow, here's a guy who knows I, I love weapons. We're not going to waste our time just studying with punches and kicks. You know, we're going to learn about weapons, you know, samurai. But I'm like, where the hell does this guy got any weapon? Where's the sword? Turns around and pulls out a Bible. Man, I was so pissed. I was so angry at him. I went up to him and said, look, man, I'm paying a lot of money to teach me karate. I don't believe in that book and I don't believe in that God. I'm an atheist. So, Tomorrow, why didn't you leave that stupid sword home and bring the real sword? And it was the first man that had the guts to get within inches of my face. And he's like, young man, what I got to give you, you got no money to pay. I reached behind me. I didn't have a gun. <laughs> I knew the guy was a seven-degree black belt. He just started uh, whooping Jesus into me. And I'm going to pay for it. So, hey, I said, dude, don't get excited. Well, when we finish our two hours, the steam room starts to heat up. Waste your time. Read to me. You know, and people said to me, what, what did he say that made you change? I said, really nothing, because I don't know really a lot of what he said, because I was getting over the two-hour ass whooping he was giving me <laughs> to really even think about what he was going to say. But it was everything that he did. It was how he behaved, how he talked, how he walked. He was a guy that lived in a very little world, according to me. You know, I'm like, man, your world's got to be real crappy. You're married to the same woman. For 25 years, you live in a small house. My guest house is five times as big. You got an old beat-up car, and I'm in love with the car. And you got this wife that you're madly in love with, and I'm going to bed with the most beautiful supermodels in America, and I hate every single one of them. And uh, how can you be happy? And he's, uh, you know, interesting thing, he never tried to convert me and, and say, oh, you got to go to church, or you got to do this. All he said is, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And that was even more weird for me. Because it's like, how can you have a relationship with someone that doesn't exist? I got all these people willing to die for me. I can't have no relationship with them. What is he talking about? So anyway, long story is for three and a half years, he read that Bible to me. And I saw his walk. And I saw a guy that, that was very happy. And he was genuinely happy. And when July 1st, 1990, my wife, uh, our divorce from my wife was over. And I saw her dragging my little daughter away. I went uh, to my room, and I remember till 10 o'clock this morning. I went in there. I'm like, God, I don't believe you're real. I just want to be transparent off the bat. 
Number one. Number two, if you are, you probably look at me and say, I'm so bad. Stay away down there. <laughs> number three, but if you, you are the fountain of that man's joy, something I can't buy and I can buy anything I want, you know, give it to me or kill me. Save me or kill me. Because if not, I'm going to spend the rest of my life on the, the world you're fake. And, uh, you know, people think that when you have a religious conversion or something, things just go wonderful and beautiful. And, you know, the Bible says that there's angels in heaven. Like, well, I said, must have not been for a Cuban, you know, because <laughs> I didn't get nothing. All I know is that three months later, my world went from bad to horrifically bad, worse. I was arrested again. I had no clue what the hell I was arrested because I'd been clean for four years. And when I retired, no one was arrested, nothing. And, uh, what I shortly realized was the government just couldn't stand for me to live the life of a millionaire on my, all the drug money. And they had a task force for years. They knew how much toilet paper I spent. <laughs> and I went in there and they're like, little money, lots of time, lots of money, little time. And it was a time when if, the, uh, if that U.S. attorney's office forfeited a lot, they got a lot of credit. So I'm like, do you all know how much I got? And uh, the U.S. attorney said, she said, no. But I know who does. She opened the door and there's four agents, IRS, DEA, FBI, and Customs came in and they knew to the team. How much? You know how long it goes? It takes from being a multimillionaire to not having a dollar for a candy bar? It takes about three minutes. That's how long it took me to sign away everything I had. How much was and, that? Uh, uh, you know, according, according to the government, $10, $15 million, according to my calculations of what I know things were worth, over $50 million. <laughs> And this is one of those rare instances that you want the government to give you credit for all that is worth because the more you forfeit, the more you co is considered cooperation, you know? But this is one of the times when I was bringing in 500 kilos, they were saying I was bringing in 10,000, you know? And now that I want them to say how much I really have, they want to say how little I have. So <laughs> I want to go back to something you said that was very powerful. When you talked about not wanting your kids to be asked whether or not you were a man, you remember saying that earlier and you, you yep. talked about integrity and how important that is to you that you can't put a monetary value on your word. And I agree. Your word should be your bond. In fact, I tweeted one time, a man who doesn't keep his word should find something else to call himself. Exactly. Sadly, society doesn't seem to, <coughs> to hold that up as a virtue anymore. Can you, can you tell me about the time that orders came down from the boss man in Colombia? when he wanted you to sell insurance and you felt that it was important to keep your word and, and be a man of integrity in that circumstance? Yeah, my dad, my dad used to tell him when we were little, son, in life, a man has no control whether he's rich or poor. And I'm like, no shit, I can figure that out. And I'm only 10, whether you're healthy or not, whether you're dead or alive. So the only thing a man has control in life is his word. So then don't break it for anything. But it was like a broken record over and over and over and over again to the point that when I'm laying in that jail in Panama, I had this vision. I'm shaving. And my son, who was only six months to me, like seven, and he's crying. I'm like, Georgie, why are you crying? And he's like, because a friend of mine said that my dad is not a man. And I, that's the moment that I said, I'm going to die in this son of a bitch. No one is ever going to say that about me. And all I could think about during this time when I'm being tortured is that if I break my word, I leave there, but then who am I? I'm nobody. If all I got in if all I got in this earth is my word, then you know, how can I break it? 
I'd rather die. Otherwise, I'm not a human being. I'm not a man. I'm not anything. And I used to tell all my workers, I said, look, nobody gets killed for telling the truth. <laughs> Just remember that. So, you know, I had a deal going. I remember I used to work a lot with Pablo. You know, we were, and, and let me clarify a couple of things. Number one, there's never been a Medellin cartel. So that's something for you. I've been saying this lately. And uh, everybody, some people have been attacking me until recently one of the shows wrote an article and said the same exact thing. And I've never even met him or even talked to him in the last whatever. So, you know, there wasn't. It was a name that the Americans gave us to put us all together and create one common enemy. But when we started, Pablo didn't even exist, right? So Pablo became very, very powerful when I came out of prison. He had already become very, very powerful. So he came up to me one time and he's like, we're going to sell insurance. And I'm like, what do you mean insurance? He said, yeah, we're going to sell insurance uh, for every load. Because the way that we used to do now is, let's say I'm bringing in 600 kilos, right? So my idea, and, and, and I recently created this journal called the Narco Mindset Journal, right? Because I think that we need to teach people about mindset. Uh, everybody asked me to help them, and, and how did I do this? And it's all about the mindset. But one of the elements in that mindset is a win-win situation. That's how I lived all my life. When I started bringing in those loads, you know, Manuel, me, and we ended up working with Gacha and Pablo, and then another guy named Frank. We, we split it. Why? Because that way, word didn't get out that George is making all this money, bringing all this money, and they get a little jealousy, and people start deciding, like, why are you not cutting me in? So if everybody wins, you know, everybody's fine. So he's like, look, I'm going to bring in 200 kilos for other people. I'm going to sell insurance. And I'm like, what do you mean insurance? He said, well, you know, we charge him 7000 so we're going to charge him 10000 And what that means is if the load gets lost, if it gets confiscated, the plane goes down the ocean, whatever, we return their, their cocaine back. So they lose nothing. And I'm like, why would you want to do this? He says, well, because first, if, I, if we say that 200, 300, 400 kilos got lost and we return them in Colombia and they're costing us three, $4,000 a piece, we have them already in the United States called worth 20000 So literally, we just made 16000 on somebody else's money. And I looked at him, I'm like, Pablo, I, I can't participate. And he looked at me like he was shocked. I said, well, what are you talking about? And I said, look, it's a lie. If I participate with you on that lie, when is someone going to come and tell you that I lied on something else against you? I said, we never lost a load. Nobody knows who I am. So sell all the insurance you want. I don't give a damn. Just I don't want none of it. You know, it doesn't concern me any. And he was fine with that. Years later, there was a situation where that ended up saving my life because we were one of the first to bring cocaine through Mexico. And in the, one of the first load, it was supposed to go to Juarez. And there was a big uh, opera, military operation, so we had to go. The pilots went through Houston. You know, time just flew and all that. Everything was fine. And then one day, this guy, this assassin, Victor, who was a good friend of mine, came and he's like, he knew who I was. And I, I had helped him. He worked for a guy that Pablo killed. And I ended up helping him a lot after that. And uh, he never forgot. He's like, look, I got a contact to kill you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, you know, Pablo said you disrespected him. Now, you used this airstrip because apparently they, they ended up catching the, the Mexican that was in charge of the strip, and he blamed it on me, saying that I told him to use it. Mm. I didn't even know the Mexican. 
So long story is I'm like, let's call him. And I always, we always had a number where we could reach him by satellite. And I'm like, look, I had no idea about that strip was yours. Because if I did, I would just ask you for it. We've done so much together that you'd give it to me. I said, so I don't know who told you that lie. But you know me, I don't lie. And hung up the phone and that was the end of it. You know? Did you did you remind Pablo Escobar of the conversation you'd had with him two years prior? All I had to remind him was that I said, you know, I don't lie. And you're right, man. I look at this world now, you know, we had a president define for us what uh, sex was at one time. We got we got one now defining to us what truth is. I'm not saying good or bad about it, but, you know, we just lost all our bearings. You know, it's difficult raising kids today in a world where, listen, your word is your honor, man. You know, if you look at the word integrity, comes from the Latin energy, which means what? The whole person. So if you're not a person of integrity, what are you? You're not a whole person. I, I did an event in New York not too long ago, billionaires there, and I ended the event by saying, how many freaking zeros do you all need? Right? Because that's all it is, more zeros. But we abandoned our family, abandoned our kids, and that's what we have now, right? And I thought that this virus was going to unite us more as a nation. It's actually divided us more. But I thought that at least it would make us stop and think. You know, about what's valuable in life. You know, our children. Our children don't want all the shit we give them. All our children want is our time. It's free. Just can't give it to them. That's how I live my life. You know, and we send books to prisons all over the, the United States. And we're going to start sending them to Mexico. I did a while back. And uh, to me, I tell people, you know, at the end of the day, the question to ask is, when the pages of history are written, will history ever remember your name? And the only way history remembers our name is by the impact we have on somebody else's life. There's so many opportunities, so many people hurting and hungry. You see it right there in Mexico, man. And it's sad. You know, in countries where all the wealth is concentrated among very few. Listen, I'm a capitalist. I'm a big-time capitalist at heart. I believe in capitalism. But, you know, capitalism should have its responsibility, too. I don't care. Listen, if you're based on left, uh, Goldman Sachs, a, a great job, and went to his garage to try to, sell uh, books in the internet, sacrifice his money, his parents' money, and became a billionaire, great for you. But damn it, man. Pay people 20 bucks an hour. Trust me, Jeff. You can live on 100 billion the same as 150. You can live on 1 billion the same. Listen, when I made a million, $2 million a month, I didn't live no different than now that I don't. The only difference is I had more stuff. That's all. So you have is more stuff. It reminds me of a story. There were two guys making $100,000 a year. They work a cubicle job. And they take a smoke break outside, and across the street is a restaurant. And this guy pulls up the valet with a four, with a brand new Ferrari, a ten thousand dollar watch, and he tosses his keys to the valet. And one of the two cubicle guys says to the other, "Man, don't you want what that guy's got?" And he says, "I've got something that guy will never have." And he says, "Oh, is that right? What is that?" And he says, "Enough." Yeah, exactly. You hear it said in the movies all the time that nobody leaves the cartel. Are you living proof that that's not necessarily true? I don't know how it is now. Uh, when I left, I thought they would kill me within a month or two. I just believe, you know, even with this virus, I just believe that my days are counted. I'm going to go when God decides I got to go. So I'm not scared. I never thought I'd live past 25 and here I am 64. But I walked away differently. I walked away at the top. When I walked away, I was doing nothing anymore. All I would do is say, send the plane, don't send it. Pay such and such, pay such and such. And I make a million dollars for that. I hadn't seen cocaine in a year or two years. So, and there was other things about it, but 
when you were recruiting guys, did what did you tell them about the possibility of getting out? So here's, here's the, well, not about the possibility of getting out. We never even talk about getting out because we thought we'd be in there till we die. But here's something really interesting. I tell people today, so here I'm working my butt off, right? Trying to make a difference in the world. I write books, I send them to prison. Uh, I'm trying to help youth. I'm trying to help people create a different mindset, a positive mindset. And it's hard for me to get people to join, you know, our, our YouTube page and to share the message, right? That I don't ask people for money or anything like that. But yet it was so easy for me to tell my workers, come join us. You got two roads. One, you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to have a lot of power. But the end of your career is you're going to die or you're going to die in prison. So choose what you want to do. And they would join. They would join like with no problem. And I'm like, man, I should have 10 million subscribers right now. <laughs> and not because I want 10 million subscribers. I don't give a damn about subscribers. But I, I, wanna, I want people to hear this message because it's a message of hope and redemption. You know, it's a message that, listen, you're not defined by your failures. You know, you don't have to stay where you're at. You can change. Change is possible. You can reinvent yourself. You can become somebody. It doesn't matter what the world says. It's what you say. It's what you believe in your heart. It doesn't matter how wrong, how bad you've done. I mean, you're going to live the consequences of it, right? Sure enough. I mean, that's how it works. But they don't define me. You know, I live. I, I went to prison for 10 years. I was tortured. I, I suffered consequences you can never imagine for the choices I made to become a drug lord. But none of that defines who George Valdez is. I'm a, I'm a child of God, and I try to do something every day to make somebody's life better, to hope that somebody doesn't become George Valdez. And I just got a letter from this kid in prison, got my book. 19 years old, been there five years. And he's like, your book has impacted my life so much that I want you to know. If you haven't changed anybody, you have changed me. And, uh, and that's what I live for, you know? And my second book is called Narco Mindset. But if you go to my webpage, www.jorgevaldez with an S, J-O-R-G-E-V-A-L-D-E-S-P-H-D.com, and join our community, it automatically sends you a copy of my latest book, Narco Mindset. For every two books that I sell on Amazon, I, it gives me money to buy one to send to prison. We have sent 20,000 books so far this year to prisons. My goal is to send a million copies in the next five years. Do you think that your time in prison gave you so much time to think that you were able to change your mindset? You think it stemmed from that experience? This new uh, project that I'm, I'm, it'll be published on Friday called Narco Mindset Journal. I, actually, the idea came from my son. I have a son from my prior marriage that was pretty devastated. Had a, a horrible time as a young man. Changed his life. Came to live with me. And today he's extremely successful. Uh, he's a CFO of a tech startup. Soon to be a millionaire. 30 years old. 31 years old. And he said, Dad, you got to write a book about mindset, about the principle that you have taught me along the way. It's a compilation of my whole life. How I looked at it when I went to prison, I said, look, am I going to let the time do me or am I going to do the time? Am I going to make believe I'm in a monastery or am I going to sleep 12 hours a day and sleep half of my sentence away? So how do I focus? How do I look at the world? And it's all about mindset. You know, I have no fear. Why I have no fear? Well, because my mindset tells me 
that this will pass, that I will be better. And there's principles that I apply to myself. Principle number one, coming clean, being transparent with those you love and those you have hurt and your children and creating a safe space where we can all share our burdens, right? We live in a world where I'll tell you who I want you to know, you specifically, and then I'll tell Billy what I want Billy to know. And we go like that. Nobody knows George Valdez. So when I'm in pain, and everybody in this world is in pain, there's no way I can get help. Why? Because nobody really knows me because I'm afraid. Because if they know me, I'm going to be judged, and then I'm going to be condemned. So we don't create a safe space. So we live in a false world. So once we deal with that, then we built upon principles that built our character, integrity, faithfulness. We deal with character flaws. Like how do you deal with, you know, pride, arrogance, selfishness, things that destroy you. So, you know, it's a 12-week journal. And I think it's as a result of so many people asking me, you know, can you help me? What can I do to be like you? How can you overcome changes in prison? How can you overcome being tortured in a pandemic jail? How can you come out of prison dead broke and get a PhD and become one of five Hispanics in the nation with it? How can you start from scratch and build a multi-million dollar international company? Every, I never invented anything, right? I didn't invent cocaine. All I ever did is apply the same mindset to everything I do. So to me, the word failure does not exist, right? They're just lessons. To me, uh, there's nothing I cannot do. If someone's done it, I can do it too. I might have to work harder, longer, but I can do it. You know, and, and, and that's how I look at the world. I don't look at the world. I don't fear things. Fear kills you, right? The opposite of fear is love. So I love, you know, and, and so my mindset, I call it the ultimate narco mindset because it was the mindset that allowed me to survive in, you know, at the age of 21, create the most powerful criminal organization in the world, overcome burns, overcome pain, tortures, long prison sentences. Today I have a, six amazing kids the four oldest ones, because I got one just going off to college and the other one third year in college, uh, all have graduate degrees and very successful. Married to the same woman for 24 years, the most amazing woman on this earth. And it's all about that mindset. So it's all, and so this project, and you can look it up on www.narcomindset.com. It, uh, it's a 12 week where I, I give you examples of how I implemented those principles in my personal life, in my family life, and in my business life. And, and I tell a lot of stories from my drug world, how those principles were part of the drug world that I live in because we're part of the summation of all our, right? The, we, the whole of us is the part is made up of all these parts in our life. So, yeah, it's very, the most exciting book I ever thought I wrote. Anyway, I think they're all great, but <laughs> I do fun questions with everybody before I let them go. Can you do some fun questions with me? Okay. Apple or Android? Oh, man, Apple. Android is the dark side, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned Pablo Escobar a few times. Narcos, 10% bullshit or 90% bullshit? 50, 50. 50, 50. Interesting. Is there a documentary or movie that I could watch that would be more true to life than Narcos? Yes. If you want to know about Pablo Escobar, there is one that is identical to him in Netflix. It's called Pablo Escobar. Patron of Evil is in Spanish, but it's with the English subtitle. Patron uh, of Evil. Yeah. Okay. So very, very good. Uh, Traffic was a very realistic movie. The rest of them are what they, what they are intended to be, entertainment. <laughs> yeah. What's the most money you've ever seen in front of you? 50 million. 50 million. <laughs> Does that fill an entire room? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the way to the ceiling. Well, not ceiling, ceiling, but... 
<clears throat> a lot. Charlie Sheen was asked one time, what is the most creative way that you've spent money doing something fun, something that you could only do because you have a lot of money? And he said that during the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa home run chase, that he and a buddy bought 5,000 tickets in left field at Anaheim Stadium. And that way, if McGuire hit a home run, they were guaranteed to get the ball. So what I want to know is, is there something that you spent money on just for fun, just because you had so much of it? Oh, my God. I spent so much money. And a lot of women, mostly. <laughs> tons <laughs> and tons. Uh, jets. I used to love airplanes. Uh, yeah. Houses. I can't remember, you know, $150,000 in my daughter's baptism. But I just can't. You know what? I actually, I didn't look at any of my life as fun. I looked at it as business. You know, I was just a businessman. And yeah, I had fun. Uh, you know, like I tell people, it's not that that world is not exciting. It's extremely exciting. But the consequences are extremely horrific. And they're empty. So there's no fulfillment, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that I can think of a lot of extravagant things that I did throughout the years. <laughs> What's the most money you've ever lost and found? Like, oh shit, I forgot about this money. I'm sitting on my couch in my office one day. And uh, my <clears throat> housekeeper comes and it was angled at an angle against the wall. And she said, can you move it so I can sweep it up? And then the sofa and I said, sure. And I moved it in. There was uh, $700,000 in a paper bag. I had no <laughs> idea who brought it, how long it been there or nothing. So, and yeah, that was quite a bit. Okay, last question before I ask how people can connect with you online. What advice would you give to your, let's say, 19-year-old self? <laughs> you know, well, the advice I give my kids, every single one of your choices has consequences. Poverty has a consequence, a price. Wealth has a price. Happiness has a price. Misery has a price. You just need to figure out in life what price we're willing to pay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but above all, the life, it's nothing but a series of choices and a series of consequences. I stress a lot to my kids. You got to be careful who you hang around with, who you associate with. Because once you cross a line, it's very easy. You know, I tell an alcoholic uh, doesn't stop by drinking a gallon of vodka, right? He's going to die. Or tequila, like I like. A junkie doesn't shoot an ounce of heroin. He'll die. We start with a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. Before you know it, we're dead. How can people find your work online? You know, go to my webpage. It's the best place to go, JorgeValdezPhD.com. And uh, in there, you can go to my blogs, my YouTube channel, my Amazon store. Uh, this Everything I do, I do it nonprofit. I, I do it because I want to make a difference in the world. And I believe I can change the world. We all can change the world. Look, if we change one child, we change the world. Look, the greatest, I tell people, listen, God doesn't need our ability. It needs our availability. You know, the greatest things in life have been done. The most extraordinary things in life have been done by the most ordinary people. You know, Mother Teresa, who's she? You know, a little nun in Calcutta. What the hell that is? <laughs> Change the world, right? So on my webpage, you can find all the research. And above all, get a copy of my book for free. Join our community. You know, follow us. Share. Uh, let's make a difference together. We can do it. Incredible story. Really appreciate you being here, Dr. Valdez. This is my brother, my, my pleasure. I wish I was there in Playa del Carmen with you. I'm just here in Florida. <laughs> you have a house in Cozumel, right? <laughs> I have a house in Cozumel. I love it. Uh, I call it paradise. You know, I could live there the rest of my life, just sitting there looking at the beautiful ocean, just looking how amazing God is. 
well, my wife and I will be here for the next month. So if you come to Cozumel in Ju in early June, maybe we can meet for a beer or something. All right. Yeah. Why well, you come over to Cozumel and we'll have fun. All right. Thank you, All friends. Right, Good you. Stay in touch. How about that? Kid from Cuba with a bright future takes a job at a little grocery store to do their accounting work and becomes the biggest cocaine dealer in the United States. He stands up to Pablo Escobar, believing himself to be a man of his word, and Escobar falls back. That conversation ends up saving his life. It's an unfortunate consequence of the feminization of America that keeping your word is no longer associated with respect and honor. I still see it that way. It's why I believe at my core that a man who doesn't keep his word should find something else to call himself. You can't call yourself a man if your word is no good. The fuck out of here. Can I rely on you? If you tell me you're going to do something, are you going to do it? If not, a loss of respect is inevitable. I can't look at you the same way I did before. How can I? But many people don't see it that way. It's a new world. Another big takeaway from this episode, it's never too late to find redemption, to reinvent yourself and become the person that you ultimately want to be. Dr. Valdez lived the absolute high life. He was respected. He had mansions and cars, spent an ungodly amount of money on women. But he'd be the first to tell you that the hedonistic treadmill is a quick trip to self-loathing and emptiness. You heard the man, he found God. And I love that his own son recognized that he had a lot to offer beyond everything that he had done in his life. That he could become more even at his advanced age. So he became a person who devotes his life to serving others. And that's because of the mindset that his dad developed. Being a narco-trafficker making a million dollars a month, then losing it all. The man signed away a fortune of $15 million to the federal government, lived behind bars. Now he wants to serve those who are in the same spot he was in. He sets goals for how many books he wants to send to prison every year. It's a fantastic story. You may think money's going to make you happy. You may think living in a million-dollar house with the woman of your dreams, or three women of your dreams, is peak winning at life. That ain't it, bro. You've got to work on your internal state and develop what Dr. Valdez calls a narco mindset. Friends, I thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a buddy or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I really would appreciate that. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 